Britain, Britain, Britain. The land of opportunity and free speech. With a village stocks in every country village, just in case your speech is considered a little too free. Here's a question for you. Do you own a passport? I know the answer, and so does your illustrious host, Monty Lord. Incidentally, Monty holds the current world record for the most words spoken in a wind tunnel. It's interesting that you can't travel from one country to another without your passport. At £95 per passport, that's quite an expense, especially when all you get in return is a small booklet that you don't even own. I once tried to use my passport to get entry into a circus. They threw me out for clowning around. An interesting fact I came across during my research posed the question, who owns your passport? Do you own it? You might think that you do, especially as the cost of a UK passport today could set you back up to £95. Her Majesty's Passport Office now issues all passports in the UK, and each year they process over 5 million passport applications. The front cover of your passport contains the Royal Coat of Arms. On the back page, in very small letters, you will see that it says, This passport remains the property of Her Majesty's Government in the United Kingdom, and may be withdrawn at any time. So from that, it looks like you don't own your passport. It would appear from that statement inside your passport that the government owns it. Now how can this be true? It is an interesting legal point, debated in the House of Lords on the 1st of November 1955. The Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, the Marcus of Reading, commented that this note stating that the passport remained the property of Her Majesty's government was first inserted into UK passports in 1948. He said, the grant of United Kingdom passports is a royal prerogative exercised through Her Majesty's ministers and in particular the Foreign Secretary. No United Kingdom citizen has a legal right to a passport and in theory the Foreign Secretary has the power to withhold or withdraw a passport at his discretion, although in practice such power is exercised only in exceptional cases. Earl Jowett, a former Attorney General, pointed out that it would be more appropriate if the note in the passport said, this passport is the property of Her Majesty. His point was that the government itself is not a legal entity and cannot own any property. The matter remained there. There is no record of the question ever having been cleared up since. Passports first came into existence during the reign of King Henry V with the passing of the Safe Conducts Act 1414. This made it an offence of high treason to break a promise of safe conduct. The passport document was in the form of a grant of safe conduct. The term passport derives from the French laissez-passe, meaning safe conduct. From 1540 onwards, the Privy Council began granting passports. One of the earliest granted passports, which is still in existence, was issued on the 18th of June 1641 and signed personally by King Charles I. Before 1778, passports were written in English and Latin. Following this, they started to be issued in French, the diplomatic language. Records exist of all passports issued since 1794, when the Secretary of State began issuing them. Interestingly, when travelling overseas, the Queen herself does not require a passport, as passports are issued in the name of Her Majesty, and as Head of State, there is no necessity for her to possess one. However, all of the members of the royal family, including the Prince of Wales, must have passports to travel. Freedom of speech is a great thing. In this great British nation, we value freedom of speech. 
We even have the famous Speaker's Corner in London, where speakers are made to face the corner for being naughty. But these freedoms haven't always been there. There were times when the government was so afraid of being mobbed by angry protesters with flaming torches and pitchforks that they just had to do something about it. Section 73 of the Coroners and Justice Act 2009 abolished the common law offences of sedition, seditious libel, obscene libel and defamatory libel. These common law offences were an anachronism in today's society, where under the Human Rights Act 1998, we have the Freedom of Thought, Article 9, and Freedom of Expression, Article 10. The sedition laws dated back several centuries. They were initially devised as a tool to protect both the Crown and the government from criticism or any uprising by prohibiting any acts, speech, publications or writing that were made with seditious intent. The Sedition Acts 1661 punished anyone who wrote, printed or preached words against the King. In RV Chief Metropolitan Stipendiary in 1991, seditious intent was defined as any act encouraging the violent overthrow of democratic institutions. Examples of actions that could be considered seditious are causing hatred or contempt or inciting disaffection against the Crown, the Government, Constitution, either House of Parliament or the administration of justice, inciting subjects to unlawfully attempt to alter matters of the church or states that were established by law, inciting crime or disturbances of the peace, raise discontent or disaffection amongst the crown's subjects, or promoting feelings of ill will and hostility between different social classes of the crown's subjects. In modern day terms, this would have also included angry protesting flash mobs, printing anti-government stories in the newspapers, descending on Whitehall with pitchforks and flaming torches, threatening to overthrow the government. Interestingly, the last high-profile case in England to try a person for seditious libel occurred in April 1990 and involved the publication of Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses. In this instance, the British Muslim Action Front had tried to obtain a summons against the author Mr Rushdie and his publisher, alleging that both parties had committed an act of seditious libel and blasphemy because the book attacked the Muslim religion and resulted in violence in the UK. Three High Court judges turned down the summons application, who found no seditious intent against the UK's democratic institutions, and that England's common law of blasphemy applied only to Christianity not to other religions, including Islam. With all that said, before you consider sending offensive messages to your MP or the local judiciary, remember that there are many more offences still on the statute books of which you may still fall foul. A great way to raise funds to build your new mansion is just to find a few wealthy people, pass a law requiring them to work for you if you tell them to, and then you tell them to. This is exactly what happened in the city of London. Where do I start with this one? It's wrong in so many different ways. We'll start by briefly looking at a piece of legislation passed in the reign of King Charles II, the Corporation Act 1661. This act was specifically designed to restrict public offices in England to members of the Church of England. It prohibited anyone from being legally elected to any government office unless they'd received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, according to the rights of the Church of England within the previous 12 months. They also had to take the oath of allegiance and oath of supremacy, which required the swearing of allegiance to the monarch as a supreme governor of the Church of England. This was an exclusion of other religious practices. 
1748, the Corporation of the City of London capitalised on this situation to raise finances for the city. They decided to pass a bylaw imposing a fine of £400 upon any man who should refuse to be a candidate for the office of sheriff, and a fine of £600 upon any person who, after being elected sheriff, refused to serve. They passed this bylaw and went ahead systematically electing wealthy dissenters, knowing full well that they could not take up that office. The dissenters could not in all good conscience concede to these terms. One of those elected was blind, and another was bedridden. There were many objections and many heavy fines handed out. This raised a pricely sum of £15,000, which helped fund the building of Mansion House, the new official home of the Lord Mayor of London. Author William Leckie later described the funding of the construction of Manton House as a very scandalous form of persecution. Several appeals were launched, but it was at a costly affair, and the city had plenty of funds at its disposal. Eventually, a dissenter named Alan Evans began a legal challenge against Sir Thomas Harrison, Chamberlain of the City of London. The case of Harrison v Evans lasted 10 years. The matter was taken to the House of Lords on the 4th of February 1767. They agreed with Lord Mansfield that the City of London by law was not legally enforceable and was illegal under the Toleration Act 1689. Even the American author, Mark Twain, had a few words to say on the matter. In his 1889 novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, he wrote, It reminded me of something I had read in my youth about the ingenious way in which the older men of London raised the money that built the mansion house. A person who had not taken the sacrament according to the Anglican rite could not stand as a candidate for the Sheriff of London. The dissenters were ineligible. They could not run if asked. They could not serve if elected. Then they went to work and elected a lot of dissenters, one after another, and kept it up until they had collected £15,000 in fines. And there stands the stately mansion house to this day. The next time you visited the Tower of London, watch out for the local children being thrashed. Just make sure you know exactly where you are. And whatever you do, don't stray into the grounds of the nearby church. The Tower of London and the surrounding area, including Tower Hill, is known as the Tower Liberty. Everywhere within the Tower Liberty falls within the jurisdiction of the Tower of London. It is independent of the City of London and the Bishop of London. Up until 1894, the Tower Liberty even had its own county government. Traditionally, it is said that the Tower Liberty extended the distance of an arrow's flight from the Tower's outer walls. Over the centuries, the borders of the Tower Liberty have been disputed with the City of London. Like many parishes, the boundary is marked with the placement of boundary stones. These parish boundaries have always been important. A person would always be seen as a member of their parish community. It was where you were christened, married, buried, and conducted most of your day-to-day -day life. For centuries, people were required to pay tithes to their local parish church. In return, they would receive both security and spiritual enlightenment. It was essential to know the boundaries of your community. In the tradition dating back to the 14th century, one way to instill in the minds of the younger generations where the boundaries of their parish and communities were, was to take part in a ceremony known as beating the bounds. The religious aspects of the ceremony became prohibited by the royal injunction of Queen Elizabeth I in 1559. 
the boundary walking continued to ensure parishioners didn't lose sight of the extent of their parish boundaries. This is no different at the Tower of London, which is both a parish and a liberty. It was, therefore, crucial for the Tower communities to know the boundary of their liberty and where the jurisdiction of the City of London began. Historically, the ceremony of the beating of the bounds would occur on the evening of Ascension Day. A group of parishioners from the Tower would walk around their boundary, stopping at each boundary stone. At each marker, the Chief Yeoman Warder would raise his mace and shout, Mark well! Choristers and local children would beat the stones with willow wands under the watchful eye of the Yeoman Warders, and the chaplain prayers would also be said for the protection and blessing of the land. There are 22 surviving boundary markers surrounding the Tower Liberty. Each one has to be visited whilst beating the bounds. Sadly, accounts exist of younger boys being beaten with willow rods during these ceremonies. Presumably, this was due to the unfortunate individual interpretations of the ceremony, or an over-eagerness to impress upon the younger generation precisely where the boundaries lay. Nowadays, the Tower of London ceremony occurs every three years on the evening of Ascension Day. The Tower procession is led by the Chaplain of St. Peter ad Vincula and the Chief Yeoman Warder. They are accompanied by a group of local school children, the Choir and Master of Music, the Yeoman Warders and other Tower residents. Following the beating of the Bound ceremony, the National Anthem is sung on Tower Green. Next to the Tower of London sits the neighbouring parish of All Hallows. They also observe the beating of the bounds each year. Tower of London residents perform beating the bounds every three years with the resident governor. A battle may ensue at the boundary mark shared between the Tower and All Hallows Church. Since the Middle Ages, this boundary mark was always in dispute. A rather unfortunate confrontation occurred in 1698, where a riotous assembly broke out between the residents of the Tower and the All Hallows parishioners. The behaviour was recorded at the time with clashes who protested in most vile manners at the disputed boundary betwixt the Tower and All Hallows Parish Church. This dispute appears to have arisen when, in 1686, King James II granted letters patent expanding the Tower Liberty, leading to the seizure of more land by the Crown. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't, you might want to jot down your complaints and pop them in a postbox addressed to the Archbishop of Wessex. Until next time, tarty bye! Thank you for listening to Bizarre Laws of the UK podcast. If you've loved this episode, then please take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you like to post. Be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode and what you'd like to hear more about in the future. That'll help me to know what to create for you.